Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Joining me today, you may as well call him J. Robert Oppenheimer because it sounds like he's been living on cigarettes and adrenaline. It's our Christopher Nolan correspondent, Nick Menta. Nick, how's it going? I am become death, destroyed <laughs> this podcast. Thank I you for if, wow. if I felt a little bit better, Josh, I would have made myself the Oppenheimer, which apparently is just like nine parts gin, a little bit of lime and honey, and that's it. And cigarettes. Lots of cigarettes. And, well, yeah, but just the martini itself. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I feel like you would have had that opening line ready to go anyway, but it, it works out well that you like sound halfway to death, too. But uh, we're thankful that <laughs> Nick is, is, is powering through. But, you know, uh, sometimes life happens in the form of a kid that just went to preschool. Uh, Oppenheimer is uh, Christopher Nolan's follow-up to 2020's Tenet, a movie and I that uh, Nick and I both talked about on that podcast and probably have tried and to avoid and we I was, just, we loved it. We absolutely loved it. Or, but by love, we mean we've uh, probably both tried to avoid thinking about it all that much since. But you know, Christopher Nolan was back in style. Uh, that time, he you know forced the issue by trying to get his movie into theaters. Nick and I did not see it in a theater. This time, he uh, got into the theaters in the most premium format possible by filming this movie on seventy millimeter IMAX and showing it in whatever theaters he could in that premium format. But you know, obviously, getting it in a lot of other movie theaters there, including other regular IMAXs without thirty millimeters, and starting his own little spat with tom cruise and kicking mission impossible dead reckoning one part one off of a lot of those imax screens which is just like a funny like little under the radar story that's been going on but you know christopher nolan has a relationship with imax so i think he like you know got the edge there uh but oppenheimer itself tells the story of j robert oppenheimer who's played by a uh, longtime christopher nolan collaborator killian murphy uh he's the famed theoretical physicist who uh ultimately was the director of the manhattan project the construction of the first atomic bomb that was used by the u.s to you know effectively you know end world war ii but also you know change uh, ch change the world as they say many 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 times in this movie and it, it takes place over a few different timelines including following oppenheimer in the 1920s through when he gets to los alamos in new mexico where they kind of completed the manhattan project uh but follows him from when he's a school in school to then starting to be a professor and teacher to you know flirting with the communist party throughout that time to you know getting to the point where he's tapped by uh where, where he is tapped by matt damon's uh lieutenant general i don't remember what his rank was Leslie Groves to run this project. And then in another timeline, we see uh, him being interrogated by some lawyers about uh, his career and his communist ties. And in order to try and, you know, keep his uh, security clearance from the governmental body that, you know, oversaw it. I think the, is it the federal something commission, uh, energy commission or you know, atomic energy commission, I believe. Atomic energy commission. Yeah. 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 And, th and then in the last timeline, we see, uh, we, we see a, a congressional hearing where he's not as present because uh, uh, it focuses on Robert Downey Jr.'s Lewis Strauss. Strauss, who was kind of like the the head Strauss, of the, Strauss, 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 yeah. The, he he was, made that very clear in the film. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, he is the head of the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission for a while, and that's how he interacted with Oppenheimer. Brought him on to lead the, uh, a program at Princeton, and uh, he ends up getting tapped to be the U.S. Secretary of Commerce. But a lot of his interactions with Oppenheimer become the subject of those hearings and. Christopher Nolan, because, you know, it's Christopher Nolan, he has to, you know, screw with time a bit. He jumps, he jumps back and forth between these various timelines. We'll talk about how that framing device worked for us. But I guess, and so, it, it, I mean, there's really not much else for me to talk about in terms of a plot summary, because, you know, it, that would just like, we'd be here all night because it just jumps around a lot. But I guess, I guess where I'll start with Nick is, you know, obviously we had our 
feelings about Tenet. And I'm wondering, you know, when you saw that Christopher Nolan was tackling this as his next movie, I'm sure we might have briefly, like, you know, talked about it a little bit with each other at the time. But I don't really think I talked to you that much about how you felt about this subject matter being something that Nolan wanted to target specifically. It was more just like, hey, it's a Christopher Nolan movie. I'm sure Nick will be interested to see it. But I never really was like, hey, man, you excited to like, you know, watch him do this bomb stuff. We never really talked about that part of it. So I'm curious, after seeing the movie, you know, why, what did you come away thinking about like why Christopher Nolan wanted to tackle this particular story? And uh, after watching it, do you think it was a worthwhile exercise? I do think it was a worthwhile exercise for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. It was nice to see him make not an action film, even though there are a lot of what you could call action touches in it. Like he still is trying to recreate with practical effects some facsimile of a nuclear explosion. He he, he built a actual bomb. I mean, he didn't yeah. build an atomic bomb, but they actually blew, blew something up to make this effect in this movie. And and he's been cagey about quite what they did, <laughs> understandably so. Um, you know, I I joked from the outset that he really just wanted to film a nuclear explosion in IMAX, and he didn't quite go that far, but he figured out some way to do it. But it was it was encouraging to see him make something that he otherwise has not made in his career, particularly mm. off the back of Tenet, which is inarguably his worst, most convoluted film. And so I think when you now look at the progression of his last three films, Dunkirk, Tenet, and Oppenheimer, Dunkirk and Oppenheimer are even though they're very different, they are of a piece and tenant in the middle is pretty inexplicable. So at least mm. this was a return to form for him as a director. And it showed him being able to make a different kind of movie, even if it was still exceedingly a Chris Nolan movie. You know what, what I came away from it thinking, and I think that's well said. I, I, I mean, I'm obviously with you on tenant. It's I, you know, if you put a gun to my head today, well, I take that back. If you put a gun to my head after I saw it, I wouldn't have been able to tell you what it's about. So it's really just like, it's it's really even more of a blur now than it was then. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I do agree. You know, it, it, there, there are some things it's, I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, deals with World War II also, but, you know, they, beyond that, they still feel of a piece more with their, with even with their, with their vibes and with the, and with where his mind was at, because who knows where his mind was at with Tenet. But, you know, it was funny, obviously, you know, everyone was expecting to be, see some kind of bomb sequence and the bomb sequence in this movie is like incredibly well done. But like, I came away from it like more so than anything thinking about like, man, like he doesn't really like politicians. That was kind of what I thought. And I was like, you know, and cause like I, I mentioned to you how I had heard some people talk about how like there was some like parallels with JFK and I went back and rewatched JFK and, you know, and, and I know you said you, you thought you, you considered doing that. You didn't get to it, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Cause I didn't like, I watched it. I think um, right before I, I, I think like right before I, or maybe a day before I saw, um, or no, I watched it the night before I saw Oppenheimer. And like the one thing I kind of could say about it was like, Hey, yeah, these are epics with big cast, but the only other thing I really see and see, you know, in common with the two is that like, Hey, it deals with like levers of power being pulled by people like that really shouldn't be like screwing with certain things or just like want to make a bunch of money off of like war. And, uh, and because like you know like a lot of jfk deals with like a conspiracy of like oh what would you know everything like why the cia would would have wanted kennedy out of the picture and the other you know all the reasons why like people like thought he was gonna you know like get them out of the war and then there wouldn't be a lot of all the money to be made off of that there was made in theory could have been made off of the vietnam war 
And so I'm, I'm thinking here, it's like, wow, like th th this is like kind of a uh, one. I mean, it's it, I, because I, I really didn't actually know much of Oppenheimer's story. So, you know, it's me being a little ignorant of history, but at a certain point I figured, okay, I may as well, like, not like, not like, I mean, I know the bomb goes off, but like, I didn't need to learn his life story. <laughs> right before. I, yeah. I, I, I know. I, I didn't really need to hear his life story right before I went into it. So I had no idea, like actually like what happened to him in terms of like what happened. It, it, I didn't know the events of the last of the of the last act of this movie. I just didn't know that was where his life went after all this happened. And so I think one of the most striking moments for me in the film was like being a little confused and until it kept going past that point, like right after they finished the test and right after they took the bomb away. And like because he's like very excited right after they finished the test. And then like once it's like, oh, shit, they're going to use this thing. And like you see this huge change in like Killian Murphy's expression for like basically the rest of the movie after that moment where it's like, oh, they're actually going to take this thing to do war with it. And it's like, why did you think they were going to do this, man? And I, and he spends the whole rest of the movie just like, like, you know, uh, obviously feeling some kind of way about it. And a bunch of politicians that like don't really understand science, like don't feel that kind of way about it. And I, that, that the movie really just sits in that space for like the last hour and a half. And it's like, Man, these like, yeah, you can we can debate the morals and how the movie reckons with the morality of like what Oppenheimer ultimately helped accomplish. But if nothing else, it seems to it seems to feel like it seems to have this understanding that like scientists like have this understanding of like what they're capable of, while politicians really don't understand the implications of that. And scientists might. And he, it seemed like no one was really bothered by that. And I'm like, oh, that's and my big takeaway from the movie is like. This is like, I, th I think it's co pretty cool that like he seemed like have to really have that on his mind, but still managed to make an incredibly suspenseful movie uh, about events that like are that are pretty well known. And I, so I came away like really impressed and intrigued that like thinking about what he was thinking it in, in that respect first and foremost. And you know, granted, there are creative liberties that are taken, mm -hmm. but the script is largely adapted from American Prometheus, the you know mm -hmm. a, an actual historical record. Right, I should have said that of Oppenheimer's life. And so while there are liberties here and there, it is a fairly factual accounting of events. And so uh, I don't know necessarily that it's, it's Nolan's take on politicians so much as like, that's what America was like in the post-war era as, as we trend, you know, sort of made our way through McCarthyism. Right. Um, well, well, he didn't have to like spend the, the last hour of the movie doing what he did either. Like he could have framed it differently and like just structured it differently. And all, cause I, I, that, I think he was fascinated with, with the tragedy of it. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not just that. It's not just that Robert Oppenheimer was the father of the atomic bomb. It was what it ended up costing him. And I mean, ultimately that's why the book was titled American Prometheus. And that's what you get at the beginning of the film. When when he flashes those words on the screen with the title card about Prometheus stealing fire from the gods and being tortured, you know, the rest of his life because of it. And that's that's what happened to Oppenheimer. Mm -hmm. But to the point you made about, you know, his his clear dissonance in building the bomb versus using the bomb, that's that's what stuck with me for mm -hmm. the last week. Yeah. Um and Esquire actually um, republished uh, a story they had run like 40 years ago that they had published in 1983 on on Oppenheimer and you know his downfall after the the creation of the bomb and there was a line in that story that really struck me and they you know whoever the author was I really should have looked it up uh, but the line is he had crashingly entered the great world without bringing along enough familiarity with the ordinary one. And that just really stood out to me because you're seeing this guy treat the building 
of a nuclear weapon as an intellectual exercise for two hours, right? And he's drawing a line between the building of the bomb and the using of the bomb as if they were somehow not connected, right? But dropping a bomb is decidedly not like an intellectual exercise, mm. you know? And, and the people actually responsible for deciding when and where to drop it had very little in common with the men who made it and the men and women who made it. You know, if anything, I, I think the movie sort of shows that while Oppenheimer was building a weapon, he was maybe like the weapon of the federal government, right? He was their tool. And then once those two bombs were built, his usefulness was outlived, particularly if he was going to stand in the way of them making right. more. Yeah, yeah. So like he kind of went from... He had a high approval rating for a while. They were happy to have him around, but at a certain point, like he started going too much in one direction for them. Right. And so he, he kind of, and there's a line in the film about, you know, how he had abandoned physics long ago to become a politician. But like in this case, he went from, you know, theoretical physicist to politician while having pretty much no experience whatsoever with politics or having the stomach for it. And so you know, obviously like the horrors of McCarthyism are what they are, but when you watch this movie and, and you see Nolan's interpretation of it, um, it's no surprise that he ended up spit out, thrown away and disgraced in the way that he did um, because he just did not have any understanding of the world that, that basically he had created once he created the bomb. Yeah. It struck me. I, I mean, on, on the second viewing, especially because I, I, you know, it was funny. I think, I think that'd be like the first like 15 minutes of like, I'm very fortunate. I got to see this in the 70 millimeter IMAX. There's only 30, 30 theaters in the country that had it went to the museum of science and discovery or uh, museum of discovery and science in Fort Lauderdale where they had it. And I think like there was like sensory overload for the first like 10 to 15 minutes. And I think it made it harder to like take in every moment of dialogue like I ideally would have on top of the fact that like, while some of the sound in this movie is incredible, I still felt like there was like some weird, like modulation and sound, sound mixing stuff going on where every now and then I couldn't hear what someone was saying, even though I should, I mean, I was seeing it in the premium format. So like here and there, I missed stuff. So like one, like, I think I'm just to like give you uh, some context for like, I think I missed like some of the expositional dialogue at the very beginning of the first straw scene uh, where they're talking about like, I, I, I don't, I don't remember how much that I heard or what the purpose is. I don't think I clearly got that the purpose of the hearing was exactly for what it was. And it made some of the stuff later on a little difficult, but I, I think just like, so I, I went and saw it again a, a second time. Like I still had a good experience. I'm glad I saw it in the 70 millimeter, but I went again uh, the next night in a, in a, in a, in a more, in a smaller format and like an RPX at a Regal. And I think like one thing that struck me, which like, I didn't even really remember that much about the opening minutes of him in the 1920s in the first showing. But then when I went again, like I was really actually struck by like one, well, so, I mean, I guess he doesn't have a great moment with the teacher and all that and tries to poison him and all that. But like, aside from that, like that's a dark moment, but everything else in there, like, you know, he, uh, Oppenheimer seems like way more like way more like lighter and optimistic and full of life and the possibilities of science and really excited by it. Um, not that he isn't when he gets tapped to do the Manhattan Project, but like there's just more of a youthful exuberance, I think, in those scenes. Whereas, like, I mean, his face just looks like like Killian Murphy's like cheekbones are, are already like very angular. They're like caving in, and he just looks more gaunt as the movie goes on. He looks like I, the, just the way they frame him and the way that he they have him act in those first few minutes. It's like the beginning of the film sat sat with me, and I'm like, this guy just really loves science, and he loves the possibilities, and he loves to explore the limits of that. And at a certain point, though, it's like you know. 
it's uh, he, once you once you're faced with the realities of it, I think that was like a cool thing to experience. Like, I mean, there's plenty of movies about science there, but it's kind of interesting to have one with someone that deals in like specifically like him, as opposed to like you know Josh Hartnett's character, because Josh Hartnett's character, like I mean, I think I I saw somewhere that like uh, his name's Ernest Lawrence, like he actually won like a Nobel Prize for that device, right? And like, so he's like building something more concrete, like everything up until like he's doing the bomb that Oppenheimer is doing is like, so like, it's literally theoretical, you know? And I just thought it was like really interesting to see like him kind of like come crashing into that. I think it's interesting, like kind of the way you talked about it and how he just hadn't really fully reckoned with what he was capable of. And that's just like a really fascinating thing to like put on screen like that and have someone like be faced with the realities of like what they were actually doing all along, which might've, it may as well have been a fun science project until it wasn't. Correct. And there's two things you had mentioned that I wanted to follow yeah. up on. And this, this sort of ties back to the very beginning when you were asking me what I was expecting out of this film. Mm-hmm. The first 15 minutes when you mentioned sensory overload, I was actually really concerned. And I, and I should state for the record, I, I thought this was a really good Chris Nolan movie, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't know quite where I would rank it, but like I walked away from this very pleased. But for the first 15 minutes, I was actually very concerned because I walked into this thinking, put it this way, like you've seen Chris Nolan make movies that were basically homages to other directors or to other specific films in the past, right? You've seen like, like The Dark Knight is really just heat with Batman or, you know, inter- he's not capable of making Interstellar unless, you know, Kubrick in May 2001. When I was watching the trailers and when I was watching the first 15 minutes, I was convinced this was going to be a Terrence Malick movie uh, because of like I was. You get all these shots of like physics in his brain. Everything's cut together at a rapid pace. It's not told in any sort of narrative fashion. And you have this sort of like very listless narration to it. And I was like, this is gonna, this is not gonna be good for three hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and and luckily that really, you know, gets toned down. And I guess maybe it is a lot closer to something like JFK than it is Tree of Life, thank God. Um, so so I was definitely concerned with the opening of the film, but um it hit its stride shortly thereafter. Yeah. Um as for the sound mixing, this was certainly an improvement upon Tenet, which you still really can't understand large nope. parts of that film even even if you've watched it multiple times um like the the dialogue just is not audible in this case i thought it was less of a problem though still evident at times and i don't know why chris nolan specifically continues to do this i know he likes a pounding score and i thought i thought the sound of the film was quite additive right yeah but there's still no reason when you watch when you watch movies from any other director and hear audio from any other sound mix, um, no matter how loud a movie is, you can still hear the dialogue. And there are unfortunately points where whether it's Murphy or anyone else trying to deliver quieter dialogue, you know, in the face of this pounding score, I don't quite know why we can't get the sound mixing right. At least it didn't mar this movie the way it did some of Nolan's like, past efforts. Well, it seems like you might even be thinking of like some of the moments uh, during the Trinity test sequence where it's like there's obviously some wild stuff going on. People are out of yellow or stuff. I kind of just accepted that for what it was. It's like, hey, if we're like in the middle of like putting up, putting like setting off a bomb, like things are going to yeah. be loud. I'm not going to hear, you're not going to hear, you know, the people there aren't going to hear everything clearly. So me as an no, audience. I was thinking more, Josh, like during the, 
I keep calling them the interrogation scenes, but oh um, yeah, yeah, no, I agree on that. Yeah, because there are these yeah. moments where, but it's like, I, okay, because because well, I think in Tenet, the bigger problem was that like in the action scenes, the dialogue just came in like incredibly low, like and it was stuff that I felt like I was supposed to be hearing. Here it's like where there's not a lot of other background noise going on. Like a character would like say something so loud that it wouldn't come in. Like like it was like it got to an, a point where it was like the pitch was like. I don't want to say it's a high pitch, but like it, it came in just the the, it, the intensity of it came in so loud, it was hard to make out the words in some of those moments there, where, where someone might have just been yelling. And it's like I don't, I think I was supposed to hear this better than I was, you know. Yeah, and on top, or, on top, on top of that, like I also just like, especially in my first viewing, I was confused as to why Jason Clark was so mad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's there's the scene towards the end that is that is nonetheless effective, even though there are times where you can't hear what Murphy is saying because the the sound around him is building so much, which clearly it's supposed to. And and they get to sort of an effective climax where this prosecutor in his security clearance hearing has been peppering him and everyone in his life for seemingly the course of an hour. And he's certainly not a likable figure. And more often than not, he's not making very compelling arguments. You know, it it is a, a show trial. But when they get to the bit about his moral ambiguity or or even maybe his moral ambivalence and they're trying to pin him down when exactly did you first start having moral qualms about what you were doing that scene is really effective despite the fact that there are parts of that exchange you can't hear because the sound around them is so loud and in a movie where the cast does such a fantastic job the entire cast and where that script is much better than other things that Nolan has written in the past um it's still disappointing that he can't quite get the sound mix right for whatever reason yeah well it, it is what it is like i i yeah, I, yeah so some of the, some of the, some of that some of that like i don't know some of the, some of the moments in that sequence like i think there's some people that are like cooler on like the last third of the movie than than i am i'm more just like hey there are parts of it i just don't know if they like totally clicked and some of it had to do with like how they edited stuff throughout but like even but like i'd agree that like that there there are sequences in there that are still, like work really well despite even if there were some i don't know like technical deficiencies let me just let me just ask you about the, the bomb stuff first and then and then, and then i'll kind of work my way back to everything else yeah. um you know i again I, I had a different viewing experience than you i would say like some of that sensory overload like of the 70 millimeter like that, that kind of like threw me off at the beginning but it certainly was like really impressive and uh from a technical standpoint uh seeing him see seeing how they set that bomb off and how it looked on in that format and also just that like you know, there's really not any ever doubt like they're going to do it, especially because I didn't realize like, I don't know if you knew going in, I didn't know beforehand that like the centerpiece was just going to be the testing of it. For all I know, yeah. like the the, the, the the climax of the movie could have just been them dropping the bomb. I didn't really know what it was going to be going in. So like the fact that they do this, at the, that it's at the test, you know, I mean, not that like, I mean, I obviously know what happened in Japan, but like, I mean, it's like, obviously they're going to, it's going to, the test isn't going to fail. If it had failed, they would have never used the bomb. So it's, it, 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 there's never, there shouldn't really ever be a doubt, like what, how that the, that it's going to become a, that the test isn't going to fail, but like, da damn, if he didn't make it like incredibly tense and suspenseful in a way that was like far more like, you know, entertaining than, you know, whatever the hell tenant was a movie that was an original story that we didn't know where it was going and we still don't know where it went. Like, I just thought it was a truly impressive how he, that he executed that at such a high level for something that there was never any doubt in our mind where it was going to end, that it felt as suspenseful as it did, I thought was really incredible. Was there anything specifically about his execution of that that is, uh, that really impressed you or stayed with you? I would agree with you that there was a tension to it, that there, there had no right mm -hmm. being considering, you know, 
you know what happens, right? And you, you still felt the anxiety of it. Um, but in that case, since I spent the last five minutes complaining about the sound in spots, I thought having the explosion be totally silent yeah, for 30, 45, 60 seconds, whatever it was, for a movie that loud, the sound cuts out and you were just looking at the visual of the bomb. And then eventually all that sound comes rushing back at the characters and rushing back at the audience. I wasn't quite sure how he was going to pull off the bomb or how he could make it sufficiently impressive for what it was. And I thought that was a really clever way to do it, to to just focus on the visual and then to have the sound come rushing back after you've been without it for an extended period. It was really cool. And I think because of like, you know, how for better or worse, just like how, like how, you know, in your face and how if in some moments really effective and how always noticeable the sound is in his movies. I think it was just like, I think that there's just a, oh, kind of a way to upend the audience's expectations for where things were going to go with that. And I thought it was like, it's, it was really memorable, like how all of the characters reacted to it. And I think just, you know, the, the, the build up to it was also just like truly, really, really something and how like you're, you're, it jumps around a lot to all these guys doing different things. And one thing I should have already said was that, like, I don't know shit about science. You know, I, I it's, it's just never been my thing. You know, even in, like there are kids that like, you know, there are people our age that like, you know, might have like done something like more similar to like the kind of things that we studied in college and have done in our lives that like still like consider themselves like people that really geek out on science. That's just never really been me. But so I'm always impressed when someone can like make any kind of movie like this that like in theory, like relies heavily on some scientific stuff, but they don't get bogged down in the jargon and it, you can just kind of like uh, follow, follow the process in a way that's still entertaining. And I thought he did a really good job of that here. So it was, I, I just even enjoyed like the way he like built up to the actual bomb going off with this, like, you know, watching everyone kind of get into position and uh, talking about what, what still needed to get done and what the risks were. And I thought he, the writing was like, you know, clear enough and, uh, effective enough that like you kind of like got what everyone was like in general was supposed to be trying to pull off without having to get, like bogged down in like too much science stuff that could have just like you know confused someone or like they could have in in, in, a, in a, an ill-advised thing that like a movie easily could have fall, fall, a trap a movie could have easily fallen into would have been just like you know talking about everything that need to go right needed to go right chemically and they don't really waste any time doing that in even the exchange he has with damon that's in the trailer about like the odds of like blowing up the earth like they do a good job of just being like, yeah, we just don't know when the, when the reaction would stop. It's like, okay, I get that. That's cool. And that's all I really need to know. And they did a good job of, you know, again, just like letting you know what the stakes were, letting you know what needed to get done and just like being very propulsive and how they went about it. Yeah. I think the thing that stands out about this for me as a success for Nolan, because you talk about not getting bogged down. Mm -hmm. If there's a criticism, well, there's many criticisms of his work. And to be clear, I'm a fan, but like I, I know what any number of these criticisms are, one of which is that he's really bad at character development at times. Um, seemingly so that he's even sometimes disinterested in his own characters. Yeah, that, 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 that's, like, that's like the drawback of Dunkirk for me. Even if I, I don't I think, think you can make that argument about this movie, about any of the characters. Hmm. particularly Oppenheimer, of course. I was, I, I was actually going to ask you about that next, but like, I'm curious where you're going with this. Yeah, I th I, you know, if anybody gets a short shift, and, and this is another sort of criticism of, of Chris Nolan and, and you know, his, his female leads or his female characters, you know, Emily Blunt probably does not get enough to do in this movie, save for the fact that, you know, she, she really nails the one meaty scene that she does get hmm. towards the end of the film. But, you know, he really takes you on a ride with Oppenheimer and he, he gets you to a place where 
you sympathize with him, you're angry with him, you're befuddled by him. And, you know, it's a week later and I'm still kind of hung up on what I discussed earlier in terms of how you can have that dissonance between building this thing and actually using this thing. And so if if that's the criticism or if that's one of the criticisms with Nolan that he's disinterested in his character, that you don't get progression, that he's too worried about the action, that he's too worried about the plot, he overcame that here. Uh, I think this is one of the bigger successes of his career in terms of getting me to care about his main character. Yeah, that, I mean, that was going to be like kind of the next thing I wanted to ask anyway was because like, I actually have seen people disagree with you on that. And like where some people think that like you don't actually, for the amount of how long this movie is, you don't really get to find out enough about this guy and and what makes him tick. I disagree with that for the most part, but I, I and it ties into another another criticism of the movie. And I don't, I mean, as I always say, I don't, I'm not trying to turn this into like, what's this bat different criticisms down, but like, I'm, I'm curious what you felt about it. Cause like some people are like, Hey, it's a little problematic to make a three hour or something movie about this. And you like never even see Hiroshima or Nagasaki. You're like, you don't see the effects it had on those people. Uh, you just kind of see it through Oppenheimer's eyes. I do think that's fair. Yeah. Um, but it's also not surprising in the sense that like he made an hour and 45 minute film about world war ii in which you never see a single nazi like the germans are not in the film yeah he's they're all about even, he, he he does stuff through very specific perspectives sometimes like yeah that. like they're they're not even referred to like at least here we constantly refer to the nazis or we constantly refer to the bombing of japan and like like these are real events in the, in the you can contrast that with if you watch dunkirk they don't even refer to the germans they just call them the enemy multiple times throughout the film so it's clearly a choice he's making. Um, well, yeah, but also like I, my, my thing was going to be like, I, it's not so much that they didn't show those areas. Uh, it's more like, you know, because I, I do feel like the, the character of Oppenheimer is developed. I do think you like to get to know him as a person. I think Killian is awesome. I, 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 I wanted to, I, I probably should have singled him out even sooner in the podcast than we really did. I, I just think it's cool that he, he, had, he loaded this movie with stars and yeah. Killian's always been a supporting guy in his movies. And he's like, no, nah, I, I want to give him this chance. And I think he really nails it. But I, I also think like, well, he's in, he's in almost every frame that isn't the, uh, the Strauss hearings, like every frame of this movie that's not in the Strauss Correct. hearing, like he is in. So it's like so clearly from his perspective. And I didn't really have many feelings or the first time I saw it, I didn't even really quite register about how like, Oh, when it's in, when it's in color, it's his perspective. When it's not, it's not, I didn't quite pick up on that the first time I saw it, but regardless, it's like so much of it from his perspective, it would just feel really strange if all of a sudden we're just like on the ground in, in Japan for an extended period of time. But like, I'm wondering if you felt like they, they they dwelled enough on how he felt specifically about what had been done to the Japanese people as far as opposed to just like more broadly, like th what the weapon was and what the potential for it was if it continued to be in other hands. Like, did you feel like you got enough of like what his reaction specifically was to the lives that were specifically lost when they dropped those two bombs? So there is a brief scene of him in a room with other people, clearly looking at images. Mm hmm of japan right and I, I thought it was effective in that he's looking at it only very briefly and then averts his gaze from it now mm -hmm. we the audience never see exactly what they're looking at and i mm -hmm. think it would be a very different scene if you turn the camera around and you you we the audience get to see these these images that anybody could could google right you can you can see what the devastation looked like and and maybe Maybe that should have been included to some extent, but at least when it came to specifically what is this character, what is this real person going through, um, he did have to to look at it and then ultimately averted his gaze from it and, sit and 
and you it, know, yeah. shot of him refusing to deal with it. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's not like they're avoiding showing it in lieu of like having that celebration, having like a celebration scene about the dropping of the bomb for like that goes on for twenty minutes. Like they're they're yeah. they're immediately kind of troubled by it. You have the scene where he's in the auditorium uh, talking to them about it, and he says like the stuff like, "Oh, you know, I'm just sad we can get these on Germany." Or I'm sure the Japanese aren't very happy about it, and, and like everyone cheers, and then he just like kind of goes into like a but, you know, but he's basically having a panic attack through the yeah. Entire so they make it clear that like this isn't the movie's not like you know asking you to like you know go rah rah yeah yeah USA or anything like that. Uh, no, so- and you know uh, to follow up on that, it's the Truman scene that's that's the most devastating. Okay. It, was, it was yeah, I mean, rough look for Harry Truman. <laughs> so uh, and and actually you know hats off to gary oldman because i knew he was in the film and then i, I walked out him. i didn't recognize him either and I, I was with three friends and we all walked out and, and uh, one of my friends just said where was gary oldman we all, <laughs> we all stopped and thought about it and we we're just like well it had to have been truman right but like you don't even you don't even recognize oldman in the moment but you're clearly taken by truman and is it is the most gut-wrenching scene of that film. And it just draws that line because he very clearly like is trying to express to the president, the guy who, as Truman points out, the guy who actually dropped the bomb saying, you know, Oppenheimer tells him, I feel like I have blood on my hands. And Truman just pulls out the handkerchief and gives it to him and says, do you think anybody cares about the guy who built the bomb? They care about the guy who dropped it. And clearly he had no regrets about it. So yes, I, I, to answer your question, I do think the film does an effective job to some extent of showing the moral qualms about it after the fact. But I also think the film goes out of its way to keep some of that very ambiguous. Hmm. Like when he's asked repeatedly what his opposition to the H-bomb is, he he equivocates quite a bit. You know, it's not a full-throated defense of disarmament. Yeah, he's. He, you can tell he's like not on the same page with Teller on like how to approach it, but like he doesn't really ever like he doesn't necessarily take like a hard stance ever on like where things should go. I think he's just like. I mean, I guess they kind of justify building the bomb in the first place by saying like, "Hey, it's better that we get it first than the Nazis," which is like, I mean, yeah, I I guess I kind of get that, and that's that's his justification there. But it's like he doesn't necessarily also call for like full like you know disarmament right it's more just like he uh, I, I don't he, he never quite says like hey we need to destroy all the bombs right i i, I don't think so you know he's more just like kind of no, warning if, the if anything he's i think he appeals to truman to say like we need to share this knowledge with the russians and, and truman looks at him like he's crazy hmm. and he does at least try to draw that distinction where he says like there's nothing special about me like mm-hmm. they have physicists they're gonna figure it out mm-hmm. yeah. um but but there is there is an ambivalence about him, right? Mm-hmm. Where he just seems like he's floating through life. And even Emily Blunt's character, his wife, is is screaming at him at the last hour of this film to like stand up for himself or to stand for anything. And at least the way I interpreted his actions in the last hour of that film was that he was disgusted enough with himself that I think to some extent he believed he deserved everything yeah. he was getting, whether he agreed with it or not. Yeah. I mean, I think he, he appeals because his wife really wants him to. And he's like, yeah, I probably don't need to like lose everything I have. And, but like, he can only, he can only really muster so much of a defense, especially when it's already kind of like a sham proceeding. Um, so speaking, speaking of that, let me, 
let me ask you about that that part of the film because like i said some have criticized it saying like you know like under but like at the same time being like sympathetic to the fact like how are you going to follow up the trinity explosion like anything's going to feel like a letdown but some it just seems like some of the courtroom stuff didn't work as much for other people what did you what, what did what did you think of just overall like more broadly like no how no one decided to structure and edit the movie together and did you find the two different dueling courtroom uh scenes in the third timeline uh compelling and how it was executed so I thought it was compelling specifically because of where Downey takes it at the end. Mm -hmm. Because I, I do think that you could sit there for two hours and let's call it 45 minutes to that point and wonder like, how are these things ultimately going to converge? And you can tell right from the beginning of the film, the first interaction between Oppenheimer and Strauss, that this isn't going to work. It's that, it's that first comment that Oppenheimer makes to him about being a lowly shoe salesman. Mm -hmm. And they ultimately never recover from that, right? And I didn't think that Nolan was actually going to deliver the payoff where we knew exactly who was responsible for ruining Oppenheimer's life. I thought, if anything, that was going to be left open to interpretation. Yeah, I, so I, much... for a while, I just thought it was like more broadly like, oh, like someone just like, you know, Red Scare, someone wants to like, you know, if someone wants to go after, do a witch hunt, they'll go after him. And I, I thought it was going to be more subtle because before Downey fully, before Downey goes full Downey, let's put it that way, before he really loses his shit, he brings back that word lowly again. Mm. And I just thought that was going to be the tip where it was like, oh, it's subtle enough, but it's clear who who's responsible for this. And even though I think that would have been satisfying, it was even more satisfying to watch Downey have that freak out in the last 15 minutes of that film because I thought he really delivered. Like I'm, I'm not the kind of guy who says that like, oh, so-and-so should win an award, but I can't tell you how satisfying it was watching Robert Downey Jr. in this role after watching him for 15 years as Iron Man. And that's not to say that he wasn't great as Tony Stark and that he didn't nail that part, but, but when that's the only thing you're doing by and large for 15 years, when you are that talented, to see him flex his muscles in a much more artistically satisfying capacity was was great to watch, and I'm glad that I'm glad that Nolan structured it that way. I'm glad he delivered on it, and that that Downey brought it. Yeah, he really hadn't. He it had been a real long time. Like I mean, I guess I've he'd done a couple other movies. Like I mean. He done like what a couple of Sherlock Holmes movies and you know which which is not exactly a, a acting stretch at that point. Yeah, I know. And he had like a he shows up for a minute in John Favreau's Chef, but aside from that, like really like nothing different since I guess that that movie The Soulless, which I hadn't seen, which I hadn't I hadn't thought I never saw. It came out in two thousand nine with Jamie Foxx. I guess he tried he probably tried to act in that from what I remember about the trailer. So in like fourteen years, so it was cool to see him like go all in, do a bit of a physical transformation, and the makeup I thought was really effective and. Yeah, I mean, it was really good. So I remember feeling uncomfortable in the first scene where they meet at Princeton and feeling some discomfort there. Part of my problem too, on, and it, it, I, I don't even know if I can blame the IMAX for it, like I said before, because it happened a little later in the movie. I didn't follow the thing really well where he embarrassed him at the hearing by talking about isotopes in Norway or whatever the hell. Like, and, <laughs> and, and, a lot of, and a lot actually hinges on that. And I was like, okay, was this me not paying close enough attention? And, and and so I wanted to go back and watch again. And, and, and you and someone else both told me like, oh, do they show that scene like five times? And it's true. They do kind of from different angles. And in like the flashbacks, they're just noting like, like, I think it's more like 
Strauss go, re- referring back to him, like, oh, he really embarrassed me there. But it's like, you just kind of like, like you see him, it's like, it never sits in that scene in that hearing about Norway for like more than like 10 seconds. It's like, it's a, it's like alluded to on like five different occasions for like 10 seconds. And I think it was just so jumpy in the middle of so much stuff that I just like, it, I just didn't let it sink in at all. So I was I think, like, no, it, it doesn't really resonate beyond the fact that you continually see that like he's embarrassed he, he, him, he, but he, the conversation they're having is so in the weeds about frigging isotopes, like exporting isotopes that like, you can't really dig into it beyond the fact it, does, it doesn't sa- it doesn't sound like a total own we're just totally like totally owns him i would and, agree with that and 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 he, and he keeps going back to it and saying like yeah he really embarrassed me and you see him just sitting in the chair but it's like it's it's not like a it's it's kind of a blank expression so the fact but so i guess i was a little lost as to like in the first time i watched it i was like okay so like literally like this is just this is just i, I was like am i missing something about why this is happening and it's like, nope, turns out this guy is just really, 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 really petty. And yeah. I thought I was like missing something because that stuff didn't register for me for that much. So I kind of felt like I was like missing something as to like why all this was happening. It's like, no, he's just like incredibly petty. And like Oppenheimer was a dick to him in that first meeting, you know? Uh, so it's like, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean like that should be enough to like kind of ruin a guy's life. Um, but like, you know, he did it. And uh, so it happened and like all the stuff kind of tracked on the next viewing. I was just like, okay, maybe they could have like, you know, sat a lot hinged on that scene. But like every and maybe too much, given how they shot it and how they didn't really like let it breathe and like make it clear what was going on there. But again, like they don't. It's not his, Nolan's job to hold my hand. It's just like I I don't know if it really like quite. It, it, I feel like other people in the audience, like I've heard a couple other people, kind of say they had the same issue where it's like didn't quite click just how pissed he was from this thing because you know it was it was it was a pretty even keeled conversation that we only see snippets of like four times. Uh, right. so I, but I, I say all that to say, like, I was lost the first time I saw the movie a little bit in the last act. Cause I didn't totally get his motivations. Cause it just didn't seem like it was necessarily something that was like worthy of like going to that extent. And I was like, okay, I get how some people might want to jump in and, uh, jump in on the, like jump in on with the, the whole McCarthyism at all. And like, maybe that's what the Jason Carr character is doing. He's like making a name for himself. And like, let's just say if some of these guys were like glad to believe that he has, that Oppenheimer had Soviet ties like, okay. Yeah. So it would be suspicious then if he's trying to like downplay why the, the U S needing these, these weapons. And maybe that means like it would allow Russia to get ahead or on top or, or on top of that, like, you know, like how, how many other leaks could there have been at Los Alamos aside from the one guy who they even agree, like he wasn't the one who vetted, like there are like some security reasons, but I was just like, man, Jason Clark is getting like so angry. I don't, I don't know why he's like screaming at him for this. Did I miss something else about like, the guy that suck suck sicked him on him through this hearing. It's like that's fine if like Strauss like made that hearing happen, but I was like, don't know why Jason Clark seems to be taking it so personally. Uh, and it, it, that might just be a little bit like movie lawyer thing. Like they're gonna be extra have an extra flair for the dramatic, but like there were just different a few different factors like that that came together that made it harder for me to like really get into on my first viewing in the last act. But like once I kind of like knew what to look out for, and the next time I was like, okay, like. If I understood science, I think this whole thing with the isotopes would totally make sense. They set it up fine. And 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 I, I kind of enjoyed, like, you know, I thought it was edited together well. Like, I mean, no one, as we've mentioned, like, likes to mess with time a lot. And I, the, all that stuff is just absolutely absurd in Tenet. Like, you don't even know who's fighting for what at the end. Like, half the people are moving backwards. He's just having a grand old time jumping his timelines. Here, I thought he did it with much smarter intention. And it tracked in a way that was like, pretty smart about just kind of showing like 
the consequences of everything that happened here and tracking how Oppenheimer felt about life. So that's my long answer to like, to my own question about like how that stuff worked for me. It's like, yeah, I I think it might've like cut a little, cut around a little bit too much to like make everything land as well as it could have. But I think it all like tracks and makes sense and goes to the, and, and, and all feeds into Oppenheimer's story, like very, very well. It's just, it's an interesting like flex from Nolan too, as far as I'm concerned, where it's like, you mentioned at the very beginning, like it's not an action movie. But like, he's like, I'm going to make this like as intense and compelling of a courtroom thing as I can. Cause have we ever really seen Nolan in a courtroom before? You know, I don't think so. For uh, yes. Yes. With Killian Murphy as the judge. Oh, well, sh- sure. So <laughs> at the um, end of Dark Knight Rises, where, where he's running his own kangaroo court. Right. So, I mean, th- that's, that's, it's just like a new kind of genre where, yes. you know, you've never seen him try and do a courtroom drama. And it's, it's kind of cool. It's like, oh, so his skills do transfer to that kind of thing. Um, and, yeah. Uh, I, I while, think I, while we're on the subject yeah, of the yeah. editing, the, mm-hmm. the one thing I do want to get into separate from the jumping of the timelines mm-hmm. is the rapid cuts in the middle of this movie when we're at Los Alamos. Right. And I've read and, and the actors have discussed how the script is written in the first person from Oppenheimer's perspective. Mm-hmm. But I would love to read that script not for that, but to see how it's structured because when you're the director and you're going to be in the edit room and you're also the writer, you know, this is like the wonderful thing about Scorsese movies where he's writing the script, knowing exactly how he's going to shoot from what angle and what music he's going to play. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're Chris Nolan and you're writing a script like that, where there aren't really scenes for like the middle hour of this film, there's like 20 seconds of people talking and walking and we cut, we're talking, we're walking and we cut. And you do that over and over for like an hour. Mm-hmm. And it has an unbelievable pace to it. That's why maybe the movie does slow down in the last hour because the the preceding hour that came before it was practically manic. Um, but I thought it was really effective. And the, a lot of it really reminded me of Inception in terms of, how it was shot, how it was staged, how it was edited, and even some of the, even some of the set locations, like when they they go down to that basement in Chicago, there was just there was a feel to it that that very much reminded me of Inception. So it's not all that often that I watch a movie and like I'm really aware or impressed of the editing, but I just thought the pacing in that middle hour was was pretty intense and pretty well done. Oh yeah, like you said, it was like all really propulsive. Some people have cynically said that the Alden Ehrenreich character felt like a creation from an Aaron Sorkin movie that's just there. To kind I of- would agree with that entirely. He's clearly he's clearly the vehicle for the audience. He's supposed to represent the audience. He's supposed to be the moral center of the film. But yes, it very much comes across like an episode of the newsroom, or yeah, or, or the West Wing or whatever. But like, at the same time, like I. I Sorkin's also, you know, the walk and talk guy and like no one showed like, Hey, I can do that too. Uh, and I, and I agree like every, everyone running around Los Alamos at different times, it's all really compelling. It's again, it's just, it's mainly a movie of dudes talking in rooms and, uh, they may, they, they they still manage to make it like, you know, incredibly exciting. Uh, but I, but I, and I haven't really asked about any of the other dudes we've talked about Killian a little bit. Um, how did you feel about how, like, uh, no one like brought together all these different characters. Cause you said you felt like, 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 you know, 
they did a good job of character development to the extent they were able to give anyone any pretty particular amount of screen time with as much time as devoted to Oppenheimer. Uh, how did you, were there any like, uh, were there any supporting performances besides, well, I guess we talked about Downey too, but were there any other supporting performances with respect to all these sciences? Cause it's kind of wild. If you just like click through, cause again, I don't know a lot about science. I clicked through like some of the cast cause all the cast, if you go on like Wikipedia, they're all, most of these are all real people, all some of the greatest scientists of their time. And they're just all here. And some of them get like probably like five lines or something like that. Uh, so some of them like get less of a time to like make an impression, but like, how did you feel he did in like kind of creating this like entire team that like uh, in, in mainly that, that primarily come together in that second act. So I, I have the cast list in front of me. And yeah. so I think I'm just, I think I'm just going to run down this almost in order sure. and just start firing off takes. Um, before I do that, though, I will say that I I thought Aaron Reich's performance was good for what it was, but his was the only character that to me felt like a plot device more than a character, mm. right? And a lot of times Nolan's characters can feel like plot devices. So I, I thought that was the only shortcoming. Everybody else, probably because of the strength of the cast, just their natural acting talent really did feel lived in. Right. Mm. Um, I thought Emily Blunt wasn't given enough to do, but I thought she nailed that scene at the end. Um, I was actually concerned about Damon because when you watch the trailers, he seemed like he was going to be acting in a completely different film. He's awesome. But it was very effective. And he he surprised me. And like it's not that it's not that I don't think Matt Damon's a good actor. I'm a Matt Damon fan. I just didn't think that was going to work. And it did. Downey was incredible. It's the best thing I've ever seen him do. You know, Casey Affleck's only in this movie for like five minutes. It's pretty terrifying. That's an intense five minutes. <laughs> Malik, I was confused as to why he was in this at all until he finally gets that that monologue that that brings down down his character at the I'm end. I'm generally confused whenever I see him in anything these days. But like he was fine in that last moment. Like it was he, he was he was less out there than he was in like you know like um, in No Time to Die. It's like what 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 are you doing, man? Like he he always came to play a kind of normal dude, and that that was fine. <laughs> um, two performances that I really enjoyed were Tom Conti as Einstein because I thought the speech he gives at the end, like I was less taken with, with Oppenheimer's concern that he had ended the world at the end and more taken with Einstein's sort of warning to him that, Hey, they will celebrate you, but it, it won't be for you. It'll be because they've moved beyond you. And then they, they get to that cut of, you know, a much older Oppenheimer being given an award and sort of being politically rehabilitated, but it's everybody else sort of taking the victory lap around him. And I just thought that was an incredibly effective exchange. And then David Krumholtz is as his, you know, his friend is Izzy. I guess Damon and, and Krumholtz are the two guys who provide some sort of comedic relief in this film. But I thought I thought he was funny. I thought he was sincere in the moral kind of conundrum of it all. I've seen him in other films. I love him in 10 Things I Hate About You. I just, I was surprised to see him here and I was just surprised how good it ended up being. He's also really um, good on, the, he's re also really good on David Simon's The Deuce, if you've ever watched that. I um, haven't, but. Uh, yeah, he's, he, he plays like a, he, he plays like a, like one of the porn directors on that, but like, is like, like kind of like one of the, you know, more, 
humane characters in that show. It's uh, it's a really interesting performance when I hadn't seen him do a ton of other stuff besides that. I think I watched that show Numbers on CBS a little bit in high school, but like that was where I first came to see him. But like he's just other, other times just like randomly has popped up and stuff and like more prestigious fair recently and always a very welcome presence. Uh, and you- I, well, I'll give you one other take real quick. Yeah. Clearly, Chris Nolan watched Good Time and really fucking liked it. Because exactly. he, imme- he immediately cast Robert Pattinson and here's Benny Safdie. What do you think of Benny? He had to do a weird accent, but I didn't think it was as bad as it could have been if you're saying like Benny Safdie, you're a Romanian accent or whatever that was, Hungarian accent. No, I wasn't hung up on it at all. I thought, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was an effective performance and I've only ever seen him act in good time and it's obviously a very different role he's a hell of a talented director he's he's like popped up in other smaller stuff like in smaller roles and other big things like if you should watch paul thomas anderson's licorice pizza he has a pretty key role in the back half of that he's in are you there goddess me margaret which is my favorite movie this year but there he's like playing a skinny suburban dad uh and here he's just playing like a fat hungarian guy that's always very sweaty uh and like also kind of pissed off so he's like he's like acting more in uh in, in like apparently he's he might not do the next movie with uh, his brother uh as oh, okay. a director. i i heard that somewhere too he might focus more on acting which is just fine though i just hope that you know hope that whatever this other next movie that like uh, that his brother's directing with like i don't know adam sandler playing a sports memorabilia guy or whatever with ben affleck playing a former athlete like that's those are the things that have come out about it like i hope it's good hopefully uh he doesn't miss Benny in the director's chair next to him, but no, yeah. The the, the other two I, I I wanted to highlight. I um I I I don't really exactly know what what the guy's job was other than like just being a military presence in the in the Manhattan Project. But I enjoyed Dane DeHaan. If you had told me like yeah. Dane, Dane DeHaan's going to be like a serious military dude, I'm going to be like, I, I how can I take Dane DeHaan seriously as a military dude? This dude's just like scrawny and kind of weird and other stuff. And like he really turned on like the sternness and like um in like the you know the general like you know steeliness of like a of, of a military guy like that meant business and uh and like it was pretty like he was very stoic but like i i, I left a left an impression on me um I do, I do find him generally disturbing like in a way <laughs> that's clearly to his credit the amazing spider-man 2 notwithstanding <laughs> but yeah he's unsettling as an actor yeah so I, I i quite enjoyed him and i even though like it was really small role like I, I he just left an impression on me whenever he showed up and uh maybe or i think maybe crumholtz was the other one i was going to mention and then you kind of you kind of got to that but like i i that, that was just like a smaller role that like i was like oh like that's really cool and yeah it's just you know it's it's interesting when you kind of see that uh that, that that just like a such a murderer's row of actors put together and i think it it, it serves a couple of purposes you know it's um it's one, one point when you when you don't have necessarily too long to like spend with any one person it kind of just helps you feel like you know who they are if you're gonna go if you're gonna go that big with like your cast list at least like you know if, if there's some level of familiarity with the performer it feels like you're gonna get a better impression of them other than you otherwise would so i think that's part of why no one likes to do it but you know at the same time i think they all did a really good job such that it, like yeah, it's like oh, you, you recognize these people in the moments, but it didn't feel like they were just like stunt casting or anything like that. They they all kind of like you know got into character well enough, and like uh, it was nice seeing how they all like kind of interacted in in that second act, and like seeing them with the ones that did show up in the later timelines. They kind of had a different vibe to them in some ways, and how they were all kind of acknowledging Oppenheimer as they like walked out of that hearing in different ways. Like I thought it was just all really effective, mainly because of just like you know, the camaraderie that they were able to create in that, in, in the Los Alamos scenes. We, we didn't talk about Florence Pugh's character yet at all. And like, that's not, kind of one of the other things I want to touch on a little bit, because, you know, you talked about how like, hey, maybe a fair criticism of some other Nolan movies is, 
you know, like his treatment of women in there, does he have a wife problem or whatever? But like, you know, I'm curious, like, I, I, one, I agreed with you. I thought Emily Blunt was great when she finally got like her interrogation scene or whatever. It was cool, really cool how she handled it. At the same time, like if they're trying to like kind of tell the story of this guy, it seems like he like treated women fairly disposably, and that might have been one of his lesser qualities. Um, there's the moments that really jumped out to me again on the second watch, just like how he treated his brother's girlfriend in that first scene when they went to that meeting. Yeah, clearly, clearly rubs her the wrong way. Clearly, like you know, and then we find out later he's like having an affair with another one of the scientists' wives for like the entirety of like the time period that the movie covers. There's on just top a of- really good joke about that, and I can't remember quite what the line no, was. No, but no, 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 it was like, oh, they, it, it, someone was like really mad at him about it. Like it was like scolding him about it. Like I think maybe in the middle of like that and on one of the breaks from one of those hearings like oh apparently they're saying you had an affair with this person and she and and, and like and, and she eventually like and then like she, she told someone about it and he's like that that's not true she wouldn't tell anyone or someone like that like he didn't yeah, i think it was it, about it, the it, husband it was that's not true what they had she, the affair no that the husband knew <laughs> or there yeah the, yeah that, that she would have that she would have ever told him like so he didn't yeah. deny the affair and that that, that exchange that, that exchange was kind of funny so he's just kind of like a womanizer so you know yeah. it's like i feel like it almost like work, the casting almost in some ways works against them there as good as they are as actresses because like you know it seems like it's in in keeping with the character that he's like unfortunately treating women this way such that it actually kind of makes sense for the story for them not to like necessarily have bigger parts when so much of it's from his perspective but people are going to notice that more when you have like these really big actresses in there that like you know you essentially have Florence Pugh in there for like like she basically gets like two scenes where she like has her clothes on and that's it and it's like people are going to notice that she's not being given more to do because it's Florence Pugh and it's like there's two weird sex scenes and like one scene where they meet at the party and that's basically it you know and like people are going to criticize him more for that I guess when you don't have like more going on with the character and Emily Blunt just gets to yell at him up until the she gets to yell at Jason Clark, which is much more satisfying. I think there's there's a couple things in here and you mentioned mm-hmm. the poison apple at the beginning and I sort mm-hmm. of lumped that together. Um, clearly he's adapting the book and he's telling some version of Oppenheimer's life. And you know, Pugh's character, Gene Tatlock, was obviously like a significant part of his life. And so it's included in here and maybe, or maybe he didn't try to kill his physics professor with a poison apple. I think the question is, okay, on the one hand, did that happen at all? But on the other, is it effective within the context of the movie? And so like, yes, Gene Tatlock was a presence in Robert Oppenheimer's life. Does it add to the film? Yes and no. I thought the answer is yes, because I really liked, I liked the way he visually represented the feeling of nakedness in the security meeting when they dig up his adulterous past, Hmm. right? Because he's panning the camera around and, and Murphy's sitting there dressed at the table and all of a sudden he's naked and he's just sitting there like literally undressed before the world. And then when you have Emily Blunt sitting behind him, basically like visualizing him having sex with another woman, like it's a very jarring image, but like it's very emotionally effective. So I don't know that the scenes with Florence Pugh themselves are all that effective within the context of the movie, but the payoff is, if that makes sense. Sure. And I guess maybe, who knows, maybe like I'm I'm saying maybe like he should have put a lesser actor in there because maybe when people were complaining about her having less to do, but if you have a lesser actor there, those scenes that with her don't that probably don't work to the extent that they do because like I mean yeah, I like, thought she was I thought she was good for what she was given to do yeah no for sure for sure and one thing I just want to add on that 
I really enjoy like if we we take the last hour of the movie and we're talking about the the security clearance hearing. Mm-hmm. I really love the way that was shot for two reasons. One, you feel how cramped the room is. Oh yeah. Like it's a narrow room and he makes it look like the walls are closing in the entire time. But two, no matter who was at the table testifying, whether it was Murphy himself or you know or another actor, you always get the shot of somebody else sitting on the couch behind them. Mm-hmm. Right? So if somebody's testifying on Oppenheimer's behalf, Oppenheimer is sitting literally behind him and you get to watch him react to all of it. Or if he's at the table, Blunt is behind her, him and you get to watch her react to all of it. So not only does it always feel like the, the walls are closing in, but you just get this interesting shot of somebody reacting in real time to, to somebody else's words, to somebody else's testimony. The whole thing was really effective as a matter of framing. And I, I enjoyed it. I, def- I definitely agree. That place, <laughs> it was basically claustrophobic. Yes. Um, any other thoughts on, on, on those hearings at all, or just the way they reincorporated the, uh, the actors as they came back? Cause I mean, I guess I would just say that like, I, you know, I guess the, I guess the Rami Malek scene was like the other kind of like sorkin moment. If people, people have been kind of calling out where he like comes up and kind of like saves the day with a big dramatic moment by like, you know, saying the right thing when you're not really sure what he's going to do. I, I was kind of cool with him then. I, I don't know. I, I guess I didn't have anything else to say on that. I, I guess I, to other, to, to otherwise highlight it, like. It was, it was, it was satisfying. Kind of like watching Strauss lose his mind. Alden Ehrenreich served his purpose well. I get, I get everyone saying he's kind of a plot device, but like the guys had like a rough, um, the guys had a rough last few years. Uh, before this year, he's like on the comeback trail a little bit. He uh, has this movie. He was in Cocaine Bear, and then has a um, has a movie coming out uh, called Fair Play at some point later this year that I I watched it on the Sundance virtual thing. He, so I'm I'm happy that he's back, and he like. I, I mean, he, he he delivered those lines well, as much of a plot device as he was, and I it was satisfying to see him get the playoff of Robert Downey Jr., who, as I already said, I was happy getting to see do his thing. But do you have any other final thoughts on the that last third of the movie? No, you know, the Malik scene didn't really land for me, but I, I almost feel like the same way. I, I kind of feel the same way I do about Florence Pugh's character, where it's mm. like the legwork wasn't necessarily satisfying in the moment, but the payoff always was. So even if the Malik's speech came off as slightly contrived or just didn't land in the way that I wanted it to for Rami Malek, we get the payoff with Downey later. So there are times where like, eh, this thing's only working at a certain level, but it leads to something that really works. Uh, anything else technically we didn't already touch on before we wrap up that we didn't already talk about that you want to talk about? Like, I mean, um, people have given Hoyt Van Hoytema a lot of props for how he shot this movie as a cinematographer. He's worked with no one on his last couple of movies before this. There's the uh, Ludwig von Gordonson score. Or wait, did I mess up his name? I he he deserves better. He the score is awesome. It's it's, it's, um, it's close enough. I, I, oh, oh, I, I added a Vaughn in there. The Ludwig Gordonson score. I mean, a, a lot of people have praised that. I think most a lot of these sequences we've been talking about don't really work without it. Were there any? But just were there any other uh, technical accomplishments throughout the movie that kind of stuck with you that we didn't want to touch on that you want to shout out? Because I wanted to hit that part of it one more time before you wrap up. Probably the Gorenson score. Um, you know, I, I said earlier, I went with some friends and one of them leaned over to me probably 90 minutes into the film and just said, like, is this Zimmer? Because mm. um, he's worked with him before, too. For yeah, and, and he's done every, I think, most every Chris Nolan film prior to Tenet. So so Gorenson's done the last two. And I, I just thought, honestly, that that was a compliment because it was like, it was really effective. It was really good. It made the movie to some extent. And 
even though it wasn't Hans Zimmer, it still very much sounded like a Chris Nolan film, which to some degree just means it sounds like Hans Zimmer. <laughs> but I enjoyed it and I thought it was really additive. Like, uh, I have not had the opportunity to see this 70 millimeter. I don't necessarily know that I will. Um, and I'm sure it is visually stunning. But I came away from this film thinking that it was actually significantly less about the visual. And I got a lot more out of the sound. So even though I've got my quibbles with the mixing and how it gets in the dialogue, I, I thought the the use of sound and the and the score itself was remarkably additive. Yeah, I had that thought as I was watching it too. Like, man, this movie is like incredibly loud, but like in the moments where it's like supposed to be loud, it is effectively loud. It's just, you know, yes. I just want, I just want to, I just want to be able to hear what they're saying consistent. You know, I don't think that's like a, I don't think that's a crazy, unreasonable ask. It is what it is there, but like I, I, I agree. Like it was really good. He, he actually did win the Oscar for best score for Black Panther. So. uh He's 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 uh he's he's already like a very well accomplished guy, but you know I, I'm pretty sure like Oppenheimer is going to rack up the Oscar nominations when the time comes. So and he will probably be among them. Um, in addition to a lot of the other craftsfolk in this movie. Nick, any other part any other part of this movie we did not already touch on, or any other plot points, or any other any other moments throughout that we you wanted to at least shout out before we call, called it a night. I don't know if it's about the movie itself, but now I'm a little more curious about where we go from here with Chris Nolan because hmm. um, this this was it's very much a Chris Nolan movie and I know we started here but it's it's not an action film like it's certainly not Tenet it wasn't a war movie it wasn't interstellar it wasn't even Inception this was people in rooms having conversation and so I'm curious to see what he does next does he turn around and make something that looks a lot more like a caricature of his own work, the way the tenant did. He's still, he, he, he seems like trying to pay it, homage it, to another director. I'm I'm curious where we go. Well, every every other interview I see with him, someone keeps asking him if he's ever going to direct a Bond movie. Though it's like I wonder if like Bond would just actually come out as like unsatisfying to his fans because it would like he'd be a little too constrained by like what the things you need to accomplish in a Bond movie. Whereas like he's basically already said publicly the tenant is what he considers his Bond movie to be. Yeah, then I don't want to see him make a Bond movie if that's the case. Right. <laughs> but like, if I, now if I sit here and I go back, because you know, we talked earlier about like, okay, he was, he's very influenced, obviously, by Kubrick. He's very influenced by Michael Mann at times. He speaks a lot about Ridley Scott. If there's a director that I would love to see him mimic or draw from, I'd really like to see what like Chris Nolan would do with Alfred Hitchcock. Right. Like, and maybe that takes us like even closer to David Fincher territory, but like, I'm, I know you can build tension. I know you can deliver action. And now I know that you can, you know, effectively have people talking in rooms in a way that you really haven't in your career, other than maybe memento to some extent. Can you make that kind of creepy psychological thriller? Cause I, I think he has all the tools to do that. And that's one of the things we haven't seen from him yet. If we've seen, the superhero that, movie and we've seen noir and we've seen science fiction and we've seen a war film i'd love to see some sort of like really suspenseful psychological thriller yeah i wonder like, if you would ever do that on a smaller scale or if it's got to be a big event movie on imax now if it's him and what that then looks like you know like hitchcock like i, I agree i think it'd be cool to see him do a, a thriller but like most of hitchcock's movies are like you know 
fairly small in scope. I mean, uh, at least the one. I mean, I, I haven't, I, I don't, I haven't seen as much Hitchcock as I should. I've probably seen like I don't know, twelve Hitchcock movies. But like, like North. I, I think it's more than most people see. Probably five. I, I guess compared to other people that like you know who consider themselves cinephiles, like I, there, there's a few I feel like I'm missing that I want to see. But like, you know, I feel like like North by Northwest like goes to a lot of. It might be my favorite of his, and that's like is like more of his like traditional bond type action globe trotting type of movie type of thing but like and like that's like the, clo- like the, the and that's the closest thing to the scope of what you would think of when you think of a Christopher Nolan movie though i'd be perfectly happy if he wanted to make like a like a five location thriller like or a five uh, like a just like a thriller with just like five locations which is like what it feels like more of hitchcock's movies are which would be cool if he ever wanted to do something like that i just have a hard time seeing in my head like what that would be you know i but like fin- I mean- fincher was sorry go ahead well, I was going to say, I'm really glad you brought up North by Northwest because I had the same response because mm-hmm. I sat here in my head thinking like, well, what would Chris Nolan do with Psycho? What would he do with Vertigo? What would he do with Rear Window? And I'm thinking of movies along these lines. And it just dawned on me. It would be like, oh, if anything, it would be Hitchcock's like basically tongue in cheek film, which is North by Northwest. And that, that is what it would look like. So I'm glad that both yeah. of our brains went or, there. But, but like before you even said Hitchcock, I was thinking about Fincher because I was just thinking about the kind of things that Fincher makes movies about. And, yeah. you know, I mean, so it's like, yeah, if he wanted to do like a a boardroom thing like Social Network or something that's like more of a like a, a traditional like mysteries thing like Gone Girl or uh, or Zodiac or whatever, like I think those like seeing him like working in like one of those kind of genres, that would also be like super interesting. And yeah, fine. If you want to blow it up and do it on the scale that he normally does, that's cool as long as it's like, you know just as good of a story as those things that Fincher does. So I'd be, I, I'd be down to see if he wanted to go do something like that. And, um, and I, I guess we'll see, you know, I mean, there was only, um, you know, I guess, I guess we basically went like, we went, he, 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 he basically does something every three years at this point. Right. So, you know, yeah. Um, so I mean, who knows? At this time next year, his next thing will probably have been announced. But he 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 did. He, I listened to an interview last week. He still doesn't know what's next. So I think you know this time next year we might have a better idea of uh, where we're going with him. Um, and hopefully it's uh, hopefully it's something good because I think this is like you know this is like really good. And you know it's funny. Uh, the movie's doing very well. Also, we should note. Um, I think I, I, I we're recording this. You know, the Wednesday after the opening weekend. But you know, and I probably won't have it out to, for at least a week. But like you know, it's it's made like two hundred thirty million dollars. Um, which is like really, really good for an R-rated movie that's dudes talking in rooms. So it it it, it did it, it, it I guess I, I say I just say that to say like it, it it did very well and he should be able to like you know I, I don't know he has the power to do whatever he wants and I hope he like uses that power for good. If there's one thing that I I don't feel like we touched on enough, yeah, it's probably Killian Murphy because we spend a lot of time discussing like Oppenheimer as a problematic character but probably not enough of Killian delivering that, Mm. which is probably like a credit to him. Because as you correctly point out, every color, every scene in color in this film contains him. I mean, this whole thing is on his back. And granted, he has this unbelievable ensemble around him, but the movie is squarely on his shoulders and he carries it flawlessly and the fact that i'm still sitting here racking my brain about oppenheimer and discussing the character as a character is some credit to him for making me buy it into it yeah and i i i realized i kind of like started that sentence about like how i was doing forgetting and i forgot where i was going with my point but where i was going with it was 
that a, a lot was made this weekend of you know the the Barbenheimer stuff and like I saw Barbie first and I saw this but like I'm like more excited I've, and I've already seen both movies twice I went back to both already and I'm like way more excited to revisit Oppenheimer than Barbie and I honestly might have liked them about both the same though I think my expectations were higher for Barbie so if I had the same level of criticism for both they I probably probably came out of them both like you know liking them about the same but just feeling better about Oppenheimer because I went in expecting to like Barbie far more. And if you told me like going in, like, Hey, you're going to be more intrigued to go back and watch the three hour movie. That's like largely in black and white with dudes talking in rooms, as opposed to whatever this, you know, rainbows and sunshine of Barbie is going to be, I would have thought you were crazy, but like, there are so many reasons why I want to go back and so many different conversations where your, 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 your focus might be on something else going on in the screen. Cause that was something I was, I kind of felt as I was watching it again. It's like, because I was maybe like less concerned with like remembering plot points. I found my eyes wandering to other stuff going on in the frames. Cause there's just like so much to look at in Oppenheimer that like, I just like, I, I, I feel like I'm going to pick up something like every time I go back to it and I want to revisit it. But like also aside from just like picking up small details here and there, I could probably just like watch Killian Murphy's face do anything for like several hours. It's so distinctive and interesting to look at. And like you said, he like wears so much about what Oppenheimer is going through, like right on that, that very distinctive face of his and, uh, you know, I don't want to give his face credit. Like it, it takes talent as an actor, but I'm just saying like, I, I, I thought it was like really, really interesting to like watch him like move through this world. And I, he, he should get a lot of credit for that. And as I said before, like credit to Christopher Nolan for like giving him this, giving him the chance to like step up into the big shoes. Cause you know, there's a version of this movie where they just like make Robert Downey Jr. The lead. And it's not that he, he's certainly not in any makeup. Like you're, you're mm-hmm. very much looking at Killian Murphy the whole time, but I think it's a credit to him that like, when I watch Matt Damon in this movie, I'm very conscious that I'm watching Matt Damon. When I'm watching Downey, I'm very conscious that I'm watching Downey. And to some degree, Murphy, not really using any prosthetics or makeup or anything else, disappears within that character. Very true. And maybe maybe that's why we didn't discuss it enough, but I think it's to his credit. And you know, I, I've always enjoyed him as an actor. I, I saw him for the first time in Batman Begins in 2005, and I was immediately struck by like, who the hell is this creepy motherfucker? Um, and I, I still love that performance to this day. I've enjoyed him in pretty much anything I've ever watched, but this was a different level. And he, for, for having his opportunity to, to finally star in a project of this scope, he, he landed the plane. If Batman Begins came out in on June 15th, 2005. Okay. I couldn't remember. So you ever seen Red Eye? Of course. Yeah. He's great in Red Eye he's... Uh, and it's fucking terrifying <laughs> in that movie. And like I think I, I, I think it's like it's weird that Batman Bat, Batman Begins came out first, and obviously that character takes takes quite the turn. But like, is this kind of funny that like you know like Red Eye comes back a year a month later, and it's like oh like this guy that was like playing this really disturbing character in Batman Begins is going to like you know play this charming dude, and then like it just goes off the rails in Red Eye too, and he's like freaking terrifying in that too. So like yeah, Red Eye is like the one movie like really like basically like one of the only movies since. Actually, I've never actually seen Danny Boyle's Sunshine. I watched 28 Days Later for like the first time last year. So I guess he's the lead in Sunshine. But like there are like just very few things where he's like the lead in like a feature that have come out since since like Red Eye, you know, like and so it was kind of cool that like I remembered Red Eye very well and really liked him in it. And he's great in 28 Days Later. And it's just in the 18 years after that, he basically had like one starring role in a feature. Like, I think a lot of people like really like knew him from Peaky Blinders, which is fine. Right. I I was, I, that's what I was obviously going to bring yeah. up. It's it's not in the film, but he, you know, that, that show is on his shoulders. Um, yeah. 
not not to to take us too far afield here, but he's got a scene at the the end of season two of Peaky Blinders where he's out in the middle of the field and just screaming, and he thinks his life is over. You know, he's he's done a lot of good work in his career, but that that always stands out to me. So I was glad he got this opportunity, and um, uh, you know, he'll he'll deserve every nomination and probable award that's coming his yeah, way. Yeah, that'd, that'd be awesome to see him like get nominated for best actor. It's just a uh, really talented guy who I think like you know just has more than earned the chance to kind of be uh ha- have oscar nominee before his name and possibly oscar winner all right nick i think that that, that about does it for oppenheimer I'm, I'm not gonna have anything so no shame if you don't is there anything else you've been watching recently though that you'd like to recommend to people um as we normally do at this point in the podcast uh no i don't watch a lot anymore i have a child <laughs> <laughs> there's, no, there's no programming for like six months olds you want to check you want to you uh miss rachel's some really good shit if you want I, I, I actually learned about miss rachel the like a, like a couple weeks ago i was talking to like a, a friend about it and um he was like talking to screen time about like you know and his kids and how he decides what they're going to watch and stuff like that um so it seems like she's popular no yeah i i i did i i'm like you know i'm actually like as like a my personal like thing i'm taking on that I don't really have time for this year. I'm like, uh, I'm helping, uh, serve on like a committee that's programming the Palm beach Jewish film festival. So I've nice. just been like, so, so I've just been like watching, like all my free time in the last week has gone to like watching movies, uh, before I can like even get to, uh, but that, that, that are going to be discussed as like whether or not they should even play at this festival. So I'm like, I'm watching all this stuff that I can't even really recommend, not because I've been like necessarily sworn to secrecy by him, but cause like, I just don't know when anyone's going to get to watch them. So like, I, I just haven't watched anything that's like all that new recently, aside from like telling like, like, like last week on the podcast or like after, after the Barbie Potter, one of the others, I told people to watch project Greenlight. I watched like the first five episodes on HBO and I still haven't gotten back to it yet. Like I want to be able to finish it and then enter that discourse. Cause it's, I think it's very interesting that, just got sidetracked by watching these all these like really depressing world war- movies that are even even more depressing about World War II than Oppenheimer basically for the last like for the, like the last week about like just the stuff that happened with like the you know the Nazis hunting the Jews and all that except one of them was about like a Nazi hunter um that like you know there's a documentary at some point that you might get to see next year about some some guys that like go in Australia whose father was a Holocaust survivor that settled there and they find out that their dad may very very well have been like a like a vigilante against the Nazis in his spare time and they didn't know about it so you know <laughs> that's a different kind of like not a sad version of the other stuff i've been watching but yeah. so uh, if if i do have two things that i did watch recently one oh, yeah. of them is is i guess they're both not all that original i'm sure i'm sure anybody listening to this podcast is very aware of both of them um i loved the end of succession obviously um oh, you want to talk about an ensemble cast where everybody oh, yeah. brought it uh season four of succession was fantastic but i i enjoyed barry just as much throughout his entire run um i'm a bill Hader fan and so I, I enjoy him as an actor, particularly as a comedic actor, but his direction at times in Barry, particularly in that last season, I can't wait to watch him like flex his muscles and make a feature film because it's some of the most inventive directing at times where from a guy you wouldn't expect in a setting you wouldn't expect. So yeah, I highly thing, yeah. those are both great recommendations. Barry's like barely a comedy in the last two seasons. Like even Hank, it's not at all. Even, Hank's not funny at all in the last season. Like he, yeah. it just gets, it just gets serious with Hank. He's like one of the great comedic characters in the first couple of seasons of like any TV show over those years. And it's just like, it, it all gets so serious, but it's just going to be nominated in like all the comedy categories at the awards. It's like, like why is Bill Hader nominated for like best directing in a comedy against like a sitcom? Like, it's, it's, right. it's like, an, it's like it, his, his directing belongs in a different class. Like the season three thing with like the motorcycle on the freeway. God damn. Uh, I, I, I agree. Looking forward to watching him make a movie. Uh, Nick, anything you want to plug social media wise, or are you still pretty off the grid? 
I'm, if anything, I'm probably getting more off the grid now that uh, Elmo has turned Twitter into X. So I think I'm out. That's that's, that's very true. Uh, I, as usual, I'm just still Josh Renovoy on whatever the hell you want to call that app. J O S H J U R N O V O Y. I'm also same thing on Letterbox podcast. Twitter slash X is at Real Movie Pod. Podcast email is realmoviepod at gmail.com. Coming up next on the podcast, I think we're going to have our friend probably have our friend Maya join us to talk about theater camp. So uh, everyone uh, look forward to that. Thanks again to Nick for joining me. Thanks to everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.